apparently, apparently Heineken Zero or whatever it is that Jamie's on is is pretty low calorie count. So, hence his spilt appearance at the moment. But, uh, but I, I think you know, <laughs> allowing for all that, I think we can safely agree that I'm drinking a proper beer, so I'm more of a man than Jamie. We can all agree on that, yeah. I, I actually haven't had a beer since Saturday now, which I think is pretty good going. Um, Damn. I'm on, I'm, on, I'm on every day, mate. Hello and welcome to another telecoms.com podcast. Week seven, I estimate, from being locked down. But we hope there might be some news coming uh, in the coming weeks. Obviously, we only care about the pub rather than going to the office, but uh, fingers crossed. Okay, so we've got um, Jamie and Ian from Light Reading as ever. This week, I think a lot of the news that we're going to talk about actually happened today. We're recording this on the Thursday because it's a bank holiday on the Friday. Um, a lot of the news happened today. So the big news is that O2 and Virgin Media, I got it right, lads, um, are going to merge, uh, which is a pretty big deal, um, making them... Uh, a sort of convergence giant to take on BT slash EE. So we're going to look at the details and the significance and the implications of that. Then we're going to have a look at uh, the UK Parliament's currently having a review of the decision we made at the start of the year to allow Huawei to have limited access in the 5G networks. Um, And they've published a bunch of written submissions. So we're going to have a look at them and discuss some of the topics that they concern and then we're going to conclude with a look again it's very uk centric today sorry everyone else um we're going to have a look at the uk's approach to contact tracing apps but more generally we'll probably discuss contact tracing apps in general pros and cons best practice all that sort of thing and just to remind you that if you're watching this on the site or on facebook or on youtube you can also listen to it on itunes soundcloud and countless other podcasting platforms Okay, so O2 and Virgin Media, not O2 and 3, as I was trying to make a forced joke about to call them O5, and I eternally regret that that headline has been denied me forever now, it seems. Um, O2 and Virgin Media, owned by Telefonica and Liberty Global, respectively, have announced that they want to merge in the UK. I didn't write about it. It, Jamie and Ian did, so I'm going to hand it over to Jamie first, who did a great job of it for telecoms.com. Tell us all about it, mate. Um, yeah, it's one. It's one of these um, uh, stories that I was half expecting to to emerge before too long. Um, I, basically, O2 and Virgin Media—they're very successful businesses in their own right at the moment, but they are pure, pure play um, uh, telecommunications companies, despite what they would actually tell you. Um, and I think you know, as you mentioned. Convergence, bundling, multi-service, multi-play, whatever you want to call it. I think that's the future of telecommunications. It's operationally, commercially more attractive um, and it future-proofs the business. Um, now, I think this is, I I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to Ian straight away just to see what he th- thinks about it because I think that's just basically the headline. Um, I genuinely think this is this makes the UK one of the most interesting telecommunication markets in the world now. Um, I think since the supply chain review, the UK telco market has been sort of just 
just mundane, just bumbling along. It's been functioning as it should. There hasn't been really any major scandals or any major news to report. But this is a massive, massive disruption. I think, firstly, it, like you said, it creates a massive convergence chance to take on BT, although it has to learn the lessons BT, um, BT really, really screwed up on. Um, but it also might force more consolidation and more interesting partnerships in other elements of the telco industry, um, just purely because I just don't think anyone else is going to be able to compete with these two convergent giants anymore. And it, like I said, operationally and, uh, and commercially, I think they're much more attractive organisations. Um, so I think it's I think it could create a tiered, um, a very very tiered uh, telco market with. You know, BT, E, and Vodafone and uh, O2, um, uh, Virgin Media at the top, Sky and Vodafone in the middle, and then three Talk Talk, the MVNOs, and all the Altnets at the bottom. I think there's you're gonna unless something changes, there's going to be three very distinct layers. But I think it's a it's a really really interesting uh, development. It's a brilliant move for both the telcos because they were gonna they were flapping and failing in the future. Uh, when the com- uh, when the, the the convergence trends caught up them, um, I don't know if you if you agree with that evaluation, Ian. Yeah, pretty much. That's that's kind of my broad take as well. And talking to people about it, um, you know, as you say, it's not not a massive surprise. I mean, there's been a bit of speculation over the last few day- days. I think we both wrote about it earlier in the week, um, and I think you even commented on it on the podcast last week. I think you were talking about. O2, um, you know, it's a big, it's a bit of a change for them, obviously, because two mm. years ago, you mentioned, you know, you've been at that dinner with Mark Evans, and there's, there's a headline that you put up. I think you'd also spoken to the Telegraph and or the Times. They've got a headline saying the future isn't, the future isn't fixed. The future's mobile, you know. Um, so they've, he's obviously, you know, I mean, Telefonica management, senior management, have obviously kind of led this and. Um, he's 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 going to have had to change his tune on it all, but uh, I think even more now, perhaps. Obviously, this wasn't done with COVID nineteen in mind. These talks have been going on for a long time, but I think now there's possibly even more pressure. I think to be a convergent player, people are going to be looking for discounts. They're going to be looking for convenience. They're going to be relying more on broadband services than than mobile potentially for a while. Doesn't doesn't to be a, a pure play mobile operator arguably in, the, in those kinds of conditions so I think the timing is is quite good um, the other thing to say I mean aside on the on the other side of the whole sort of convergence story I suppose is the I know some commentators and analysts see a lot of sort of financial engineering and, and sort of debt relief going on here you know Telefonic has got a big uh, a big debt on its balance sheet was under pressure to has been under pressure to be has been selling various assets and looking for mergers hadn't been able to kind of get this deal done with three you know the story that scott wanted to write um a couple of years ago and it was apparently in talks even before then when the whole sort of e merger happened so it's been looking for uh it's been looking for an opportunity for a lot for a long time and similarly liberty it's sort of um i haven't looked into this a lot but there's a lot of speculation that Liberty's owners are kind of looking for sort of favourable tax um, breaks through this. That um, it sort of helps them as well from a financial perspective, and that they've had their own kind of issues on that front. So, so that's 
us to it. And then, yeah, on the competitive front, definitely, I think one thing that we'll see maybe coming out of it, and it'd be interesting to see whether the UK goes a little bit in this direction of Spain, which is a really converged market now. I think you've got three players there, all with fixed and mobile operations, all, all able to sort of offer the full bundle of service. Might have been before, actually, with Massimovil. I'm not sure too much about that particular company, but it does raise questions about three, I think, in particular, but also Vodafone, which had been, you know, linked with Virgin for a long um linked with Liberty for a long time, you know, on, on sort of merger front and did this big deal in Germany and some other European last year, but didn't get anything done in the UK. Now OT's come along, but that's going to put a lot of pressure on uh, on Vodafone. They do have their deal with, with City Fibre for fibre rollout, but it's not really on the kind of scale at the moment uh, that this is. And it's not uh, it's not obviously one combined entity. So It'd be interesting to see what they do. It'd be interesting to see what Sky does and what Three does as a result of this, and it could sort of spur a lot more action, I think, in the market. I think one of the big questions you got to you you got to ask is, uh, I mean, convergence for the sake of convergence can be done, uh, can be done, but it'll be done badly. Like we talk about convergence in the UK all the time with BT, but I think what is what is worth pointing out is they have done a shockingly poor job of it. Um, you know, you look at how how the, the 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 leaders in convergence around the world, and you know, Orange comes to the top of my mind. I mean, it 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 has been investing in convergence for such a long time, and now it's really really starting to 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 pay off. I think when you look at the BT, they spent what twelve and a half billion five years ago to buy a mobile network and a well-known well known no mobile brand to buy their way into that market. Now, convergence, in my eyes, has failed there because they have two distinct business units operate, operating in the same market, not cross-selling, not, not gaining the commercial benefits of having a single brand with a multi-service offering. I think this is where... You, you, you tie in Sky as a successful um, company of the, con uh, the Convergence era, although I still wouldn't put them as a top tier because they don't own any of their own networks. Um, but they, they have married all of their services under a single brand. You, know, you, buy, you buy broadband and content as a single package. Now, that massively shoots up your ARPU and forces loyalty on customers. I think that is the way, look, the big decision that um, O2 and Virgin Media have to make, I'd, I'd say very soon, is which brand is going to survive? You know, which brand are they going to unite behind and drive towards um, this convergence goal? Because I think there's a genuine opportunity to, to overtake BT as the, the, the market leader. BT has all these assets, you know, biggest mobile network, biggest bank account, biggest broadband network, biggest Wi-Fi, uh, public Wi-Fi footprint around the UK. Yet it hasn't, uh, it hasn't distinguished itself as an outright leader in the connectivity market. That's a failure from BT. But managed properly, Virgin Media and O2 certainly can take over. Yeah, which which ones do you think they will keep? Because 
I know some analysts are saying it would make more sense to keep the O2 brand. It's pretty strong. I think they've got a good reputation for network quality in the in the market. Um, Virgin Media, arguably, I don't know. I mean, they, they've, had, they've had their issues, I think, with customer service in the past. But then again, you wouldn't think of uh, you wouldn't think of O2 as a kind of fixed line content player in the same way that you associate Virgin Media with. You know, so it's a difficult one for them to make. But as you say, I think the worst thing for them to do is is sort of faff around in the way that BT did for a long time, where it wasn't clear that EE was even a part of ET to cut uh, BT to customers, and you know they're only they're only really addressing that now, I think, under under the new C, relatively new CEO Philip Janssen, where they've got this sort of halo uh, strategy and they've got the kind of dual branding going on on shops all of a sudden. Mm. Um, yeah, but you know BT is arguably about other other problems at the moment that it needs to deal with as as sort of emerged today on the. Earnings call, but I'd be I'd be interested to you know to know what you think about which brand will survive. I would I would put my money behind O2. I think there's there's a lot of reasons to to persevere with the O2 brand. I mean, first of all, it is I think it's a stronger brand in the UK. Um, I think there's a lot of um, I think there's there's a, a lot of emotion that's attached to. The, the the O2 brand in the the eyes of the consumer as well. Whether it comes to uh, big headline sponsorship deals, the O2 Arena out in Greenwich, I think there's a lot of there's there's that there's there's been a lot evolved around that brand um, to 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 sort of play a part in the UK connectivity scheme. I think the other the other elements which is really interesting there and i've been saying this for, uh, for for months but it just hasn't seemed to get through to anyone is that the, the priority moments is a great value add and they need to supercharge that again to add some differentiation to their business um now that is something which is which is well known and a, a big tie to the o2 business and i think that's something which could really 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 set them apart in the connectivity stakes Interesting enough, I, I asked this question in one of the polls on the, the telecoms.com um, uh, uh, website. And uh, despite the, 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 the evidence weighing towards the O2 brands, the most popular answer on what the new company should be called is that a new, cre- uh, a new brand should be created. They should, they should create a new identity. Now there are there's of course um, pluses to that. It's a new company. It's a new offering. You, you get to start from scratch again with a new brand. But then again, you've got to start from scratch with a new brand. No one knows you. you know, you've got to spend a lot of marketing dollars to actually build the reputation, the resiliency, and the brands. These these you know Apple isn't the most powerful brand in the planet because it does good technology. It's, it's partly because it's cultivated this loyal following of customers through intelligence advertising, marketing campaigns, retention schemes for decades. You know, think back to the, uh, what was his name? Jason Long, whatever it is. It's like a, uh, a, a, a rom-com actor from the, it's Justin Long, Piers, uh, Piers uh, corrected me. Uh, from he's a rom-com actor from the eight, uh, from the nineties. They did the "I'm a PC, I'm a Mac" advertising campaign. That was an immensely powerful. 
And that was one, that's one of the reasons, I think, that people separate themselves into these two very distinct camps. You know, you've got this messaging from Apple that says, you're not a PC person, you're a Mac person. And that, that you know, building that loyalty takes years and years and years and years. So there are advantages to building a new identity, but, you know, realistically, it's hard graft, expensive, and it can't be done overnight. Maybe they'll just lump the two together and call it O2 Virgin or something, you know? O2 uh, Virgin. <laughs> the, yeah. I mean, uh, that, O2's got the... Or Virgin. I don't know. I mean, the, one of the easy things, I suppose, is that O2's very short. So it's, you know, it's not mm. a long kind of uh, brand. So you could, maybe you could tag them together and it would work in a way and people will get used to the idea of it being a, a combined company. I mean, BTEE, the easiest thing for them to do would just have been to call it BTEE, really. But um, they messed around for so long keeping them separate and then not not being able to decide which one they were going to favour. And even now, you have customer care people phoning you up and trying to sell you um, trying to sell you services because you tell them you're an EE customer and they seem to view it as a completely separate operator. So they're well, own. Ian. People seem confused. Yeah. You were uh, a slight slip of the tongue earlier, which I thought was inspired. You said ET. That's what they should have done. I would have signed ET, up. Yeah, yeah. And they should have bought, <laughs> they should have bought all the ET stuff off whoever owns it. Had pictures of aliens with long fingers and shit. I think, I think that would have been a winner. Still, hindsight is always twenty twenty. I think, uh, I mean, back to what Jamie said about the completely new brand, I think he's 100% right about the cost of it. Um, you can have a new brand, but you better set aside a ton of money to push that and, new brand. And time. Uh, and time, yeah. I mean, you know, branding is interesting. You mentioned the Apple thing with that Justin Long. It was very effective at characterizing the two companies and, and characterizing Windows types as dweebs, but it also characterized Apple people as smug bastards. So you've you got to be a little bit careful about putting brands into boxes. Um, yeah, but he I seems think... to be happy with that. Just ask Pierre. I mean, he's a right smug. Yeah. He just lulled on the comments about that. Um, yes, well, there, there we are. That, that's another thing entirely, but I, I'm, I'm not going to antagonise Apple fanboys today um, any more than I already have. The uh, I think the interesting thing, if they choose, choose to pick one or the other, another thing to bear in mind, and I've often thought this about Virgin Brands, Richard Branson's obviously done a great job. And in some ways, this portability of the Virgin brand's probably done him well because whenever he sets up a new venture, he doesn't have to do a lot of that starting from scratch spend that we were just talking about. Uh, so there's a degree of portability about the brand. The flip side is, I think, then the mature brand is diluted because you've got, you got Virgin Media, but you've got Virgin Trains, you've got Virgin Airlines, you got Virgin this, that, or the other. And it could be that as a standalone conspicuous brand, um, O2 would be better on that basis as well. It's just another thought. I'm not an expert on branding, but yeah. I guess what you've got to question or what you've got to ask is what, what's the value of each brand? And for me, when you look at a broadband company, the value is entirely um, utilitized. You know, why do you, why do you purchase a broadband contract. I'll be completely honest. The reason I do it is because it's the cheapest one available at the speed that I want to purchase. 
Um, now, when you do mobile, generally you're you're buying into the other offers as well. I think a lot of people will be very very price sensitive, but there's other element, elements you've got to consider. You know, for instance, um, you know, like the the priority moments. I bang on about it, but I think that's really really good. Um, I think you know if you look at uh, the the value adds that you also have onto each of the mobile contracts. People buy into these brands, um, and the other thing to consider, uh, which I think again gives O2 a lot more credibility than anyone else, is that you can buy an O2 contract anywhere now. You know they, they've got ninety nine percent population coverage, whereas Virgin Media you can only buy Virgin Media services if you're currently in the right place. You know, they've only passed 15 million homes or something like that when, you know, that's probably about 50% of the UK market. So as it stands, and that puts something in your mind, I can or cannot be a Virgin Media customer, but anyone can be an O2 customer. I think it's just a small thing, but I think, you know, you add up all these small things and, and it, I, I think they should go with O2. I yeah. think it's and one more thing to to follow up on your excellent point about ISPs not being very sexy brands. Virgin does hardly any original programming, as far as I'm aware. So it's pretty much just an aggregator. Uh, yeah. So you know that that diminishes its power as a brand. At least Sky has things like Sky News that are quite conspicuous and all yeah. that sort of thing. So I think I think that's another point. And, and by the way, uh, before I ask Ian if he's got any last thoughts on this particular topic. One little tangent that Jamie and I were discussing when I was um, writing a, a story earlier on in the week is uh, Virgin keeps signing these backhaul deals with um, with mobile operators, and it's just signed one with three. Maybe that's my excuse for thinking this was a deal with three and, <laughs> and not um, and not Virgin or whatever. Anyway, um, and so there's some complications there. So, you know, if, if Virgin is now that presumably part of the appeal of going with Virgin as opposed to open reach for backhaul um, is it's not BT and it's not a direct competitor, i.e. EE. Well, now it's going to be. So that creates further complications. On the flip side, it could open more doors for the likes of City Fiber and all that sort of thing. I think I think the one of the interesting things to, look, to think about with the the the, the uh, the Virgin Media um, and Three deal is that it's dark fiber, isn't it? And I think BT has often resisted um, dark fiber, um, so that might have had some elements in, uh, into it. I think. I think the other the other deal which I think is really really interesting is the partnership between Vodafone and Virgin Media. Um, you know, the the. I can't remember which way it works or why there's benefits each way. I think Vodafone use Virgin Media as backhaul, um, but also part of the deal, Virgin Media, you are an MVNO on um, the, the, the Vodafone network. Well, the part of that deal is going to be scrapped because why on earth was um, the Virgin MVNO partnership be on uh, a rivals network once they've merged but what consequences does that have to the vodafone backhaul deal um yeah i you know i think i i think that relationship could come under pressure 
um, just purely because you're removing your your the the equation is balanced with money and MVNO on one side and backhaul services on the other, but you take away the money uh, the 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 MVNO and it becomes a disproportionate equation. So so how are they going to rebalance that commercial relationship? So that that'll be an interesting one to 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 look at over the coming weeks. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to have to be a lot of unraveling, and just sort of I don't know buying out of contracts at the very least. Ian, do you have any last thoughts on this merger before we move on to the next topic? Not really, only that if uh, Richard Branson's still associated with Virgin Media as a brand, maybe that's another reason to ditch the Virgin Media brand because he's not coming out of the whole COVID-19 thing looking very good, is he? So uh, He keeps asking for bailouts. Maybe, that, maybe that's more pressure to go with O2. Yeah, he's he's been sort of slated generally in the media over the last few weeks. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's sitting there sort of sending sort of Zoom calls from his private island going, can I have some taxpayers' money, please? And it's not going down too well. Um, yes. Okay. So, um, yeah. So the, the topic that we've discussed at exhaustive length of Huawei's involvement in UK's 5G networks, my justification for bringing it up again is that we had our decision at the start of the year where the Boris Johnson government went, uh, went uh, look, look, okay, we can have them in a little bit. Uh, that's my shitty Bojo impression. Um, we... Uh, We'll let them in uh, to the RAN and only 35% of that. Can't say fair in that, cut in my own throat. And they hope that would be it. But obviously the Americans weren't happy because they want a total ban. And a lot of people, as I've mentioned in previous pods, a lot of people who suddenly have an opinion on Huawei because it's on the front page aren't happy either. They just think that they're, that they're dodgy, the Chinese are dodgy, end of. And so, so this um, Security and Defence Committee has been looking for submissions on a review of that, which I think is good. I think it's good that it's reviewed. Uh, it shows that that there's rigor and due process in our in our democratic system, and and they published all these written submissions. And I just spent ages, sort of yesterday and today, going through them all to distill them into the sort of edited highlights. Um, and I basically broke them down into uh, three chunks. One is from the vendors. Ericsson um, submitted something, but they didn't really comment on it. It was just a general, this is this is how 5G works type of thing. BT uh, took a slightly defensive tone, presumably because they're worried about being forced to swap out Huawei stuff at a faster speed and at a greater extent than they planned, which would cost them money. Um, then we've got, um, and in fact, I will, uh, after I've mentioned this, I'm going to open this up to you guys because there's a, there's a good tangent from this. Um, there was a consortium of companies, uh, which included Mavenir, Parallel Wireless, and a few others. But basically, the thing they had in common was ORAN or OpenRAN. And, and Jamie, I'll, I'll invite you to clarify the semantics of that in a bit as well. Um, and so they've basically gone, oh, you're worried about Huawei, are you? Well, don't worry. We've got this new technology called OpenRAN, and that will solve all your problems. So that was quite sort of opportunistic. And then TIP, Telephone Infrastructure Project, also pitched in and said pretty much the same thing. And then lastly, among the vendors, Huawei itself, it was quite um, understated, as I said, and they completely acknowledged that they're viewed as high risk, and that's that. They're not contesting that designation. But obviously, as you'd expect, they were insisting that all the safeguards that have been put in place are just fine and no one's got anything to worry about. So that's the summary of the vendors. I'll get back to some of the other people in a bit, but I'm going to 
I'm going to go off on the tangent about Open RAN. Firstly, I mean, I'll ask I'll ask you first, Ian, as we were chatting about this. Um, uh, you know, they're they're presenting Open RAN as a viable alternative to being exposed to high risk vendors. What do you think of that? And then tell us a little bit about some other Open RAN that you've been writing about this week. Um, is it a viable alternative? No. Uh, but it could be, I suppose, in the future. And there's a huge amount of interest in it. And uh, there are many, many operators obviously talking about it at the moment and suggesting it could be something that is significant in the future and people trials and experimenting. Uh, what you don't have is anybody actually using it at scale apart from Rakuten in Japan, which had the benefit of building a sort of network from scratch, so not having to maintain anything. Uh, even then, people are pretty sceptical about whether that's going to work. Uh, and then you also have DISH in the US kind of keeping an eye on on the Rakuten uh, deployment, really, sort of using that as a guide um, and may sort of follow it down the same line. It's already sort of named a couple of the companies that you just mentioned there, Scott. I think Mavenir sort of turned up in their their plans already. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept. It's been around for a couple of years. The whole idea is to sort of disaggregate the hardware and the software and introduce more open interfaces into that radio access network area, which has always been a bit closed in the past. You know, if you buy your baseband gear from Ericsson, you kind of have to take the radios as well. You, you have problems using one company's 4G equipment and another's 5G. So the whole point of Open RAN is to try and break down some of those barriers, get more competition in, use general purpose processes and get costs down. The trouble is that, you know, I mean, I like I like the sound of it. I like the idea of it, and I've always sort of trying to try to write about it enthusiastically. But I'm I'm I'm, I'm still skeptical because you, know, you talk to wireless experts, you talk to sort of people on the chip side who really kind of know what they're know what they're talking about. And I had the benefit of speaking to a couple of these people recently, and you know none of them are really convinced about. And even the operators actually talk to talk to um, Alex Choi, who's the CTO at Deutsche Telekom. They're all pretty skeptical about this. Uh, capability of general purpose processes and how how whether that can really be overcome and you know the open community would say well you can sort of offset it in other ways software is improving all the time but it's you know it remains to be seen really and i think everybody's looking at that rakuten deployment to to see what happens to see if there are problems to see if it works at scale and to see if they can sort of sustain the prices and do it economically and if they can good luck to them and it'll probably change things and inject a lot of momentum but I think it's um, it's it's only ever really going to get used by mainstream players for the next couple of years in in sort of less demand scenarios. You know, emerging markets. I think there's a big role for it there. I think sort of rural communities. But people aren't people like BT and Vodafone. They're not going to start building open round networks that are covering sort of seventy percent of the UK. And you know, I don't see and Verizon doing that either. So. So as a viable alternative to Huawei right now, no, it isn't. Alternatives to Huawei right now are Ericsson and Nokia or not do anything, you know, give up a pub instead. That's not a good idea because they're all shut. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I know. Well, actually, a complete tangent. Uh, so I saw someone uh, refer to a funny tweet uh, where someone said, do you think the pubs are thinking about us? <laughs> as well because we're all thinking about them um jamie uh yeah feel free to comment on what um 
uh, Ian just said, but also if you could sort of introduce this new uh, lobbying group, that would be great as well. Um, yeah, I'm I'm largely in the same camp as Ian. Um, I think I think you know there's a lot of enthusiasm for um, for open RAN in Japan and the US because they have the the very enviable position of building networks where they don't have to compensate or offer any concessions to technology which is already in the ground or on the ground or in the air. You know, they you, you build a network from scratch and you can build it however you want, but no one else has the opportunity to build a network from scratch. So so th this is where I think, you know, like like Ian said, if you're going to build 5G, you've got to lay it over the top of 4G and there's got to be interoperability there and guarantee interoperability. You've got to generally use the same vendor. You know, it's it, it, it's a new it's a nuance, but I, I think, well, it's not a new, it's not, it's, it's sort of comparable to the fixed wireless access um, sort of segment in that there is potential. You can see where the value is. But realistically, the use cases are very small and far between. You know, rural connectivity, um, you know, that's always been a problem in terms of uh, demonstrating ROI. But then it's also less demanding. Uh, you don't have to have as resilient a network because you haven't got as many critical functions running over it or as many people connecting to the same part, uh, to the same infrastructure. So you can take more risks. Developing markets, again, fixed wireless access is a proposition where you don't have a huge drive for traditional broadband. This is where Open RAN could play a role as well. I, I mean, the, 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 one, of the, one of the more interesting um, sort of developments in Open RAN from, from my perspective is the development of this or the, the, the creation of this lobby group, which is, will be known as the Open RAN Policy Coalition. Now, I think, I think if you actually look through uh, what has been put up on their website, it's largely underwhelming. Um, you know, they've basically paid a PR agency to say, build us a website. And they've built a website with um, surface knowledge and nothing really, really that insightful, just a load of buzzwords and, uh, and, and sort of like generic statements. Um, but there are a few very, very, very interesting elements to it. If you look at the objectives of this lobby group, and I'm just, I've just got them up in the background now, so I'm just going to read them out. So they want to influence the creation of policies which, first of all, signal government employment for interoperable and open solutions. So basically, they want governments to explicitly state their support and throw their weight behind it. The second one is to use government procurement to support vendor diversity. Now, does this suggest that there's going to be the creation of legislation and regulation which dictates that any networks being built with government funds has to incorporate some of these open technologies? Um, that could shift the market away from proprietary technologies. And then the final one is avoid heavy-handed or prescriptive solutions. 
Now, does that mean that they're effectively going to legislate or regulate against vendor lock-in? Now, I mean, obviously, this is ambition from creating policy, and that's a a long way from tabling bills in Congress or the House of of Parliament. But but these are some very, very aggressive ambitions from this lobby group. And I, I think, I think it, you know, if it gets momentum, it, it really, really could generate some interest in this industry, but also force people to put money into the open, uh, open ecosystem, which will just compound progress and growth and accelerate deployment times. So I think it's really, I think it's a, it's a lobby group well worth keeping an eye on. Do you agree with that, Ian? Sorry, I was on mute. Uh, yes, uh, well, it's it's interesting. I think there's a I think there's a subtext to it and a, and a kind of dark side to it. Um, it's uh, I mean it's a let's it's a US driven lobby group. This it's um, set up in the US. Most of the members are US companies. There are a few from outside that market. Diana Ronaldo, who I think is in charge of it, was formerly at the Department of Commerce. Um, and notably, it doesn't include any Chinese members at all in its 31 members or, or whatever there are, 30 plus. Um, it's, I, I did ask them the question, is it open to Chinese members? They didn't respond to me. Um, I, you know, it's, and, it, and it comes interestingly after various other noises that the US has been making about open RAN earlier this year, suggestions from a group of US senators about having a $1 billion open RAN fund. Um, you know, there's been... There's been this sort of political movement that sort of got behind Open RAM, which was never really there at the beginning. And, and I, I think it's a shame in a way that, that, that that's happened. You know, when this started kind of two years ago, I remember being at Mobile World Congress and that the ORAN Alliance, which is the main specifications body in this, uh, was actually formed from the merger of two other groups, the XRAN Forum and the CRAN Alliance. Now, the XRAN Forum was largely American and Western companies, but the CRAN Alliance was... Chinese driven. I think China Mobile, the main company behind it. And you look at the membership of the ORAN Alliance now, there's a huge number of Chinese vendors in it, companies that are not very well known other than ZTE, perhaps. Uh, none of these none of these companies at all are, are, are part of this, um, this new open policy coalition. And I think the you know, the US has obviously seized hold of this technology. It's got it's got the idea that it's the answer to the Huawei threat, you know, that you can use open RAN to uh you know it's the most viable way to kind of build networks without chinese involvement um the trouble is that obviously the specifications group does involve a lot of chinese companies so it raises questions about fragmentation there um the immaturity of the technologies we've just been talking about means it isn't really ready to i mean this idea that it is ready to replace huawei well it may be in the future but it certainly isn't now so i think they're sort of kidding themselves slightly on that front Maybe a policy push will help, maybe funding will help, but I think it's an enormous challenge to overcome. And the other issue is it's not more anti-Chinese than it is anti-establishment. I mean, it's arguably a bigger threat, I think, to Ericsson and Nokia than it is to Huawei. In Ericsson, you've got a company that is almost entirely reliant on mobile technology for its revenues. So if if Open RAN does sort of undercut that market, then they, they really stand to suffer in a way that, you know, Huawei is a much more diverse business from a vendor perspective. And, and with Nokia, you've got a company that's barely profitable and has all sorts of other challenges at the moment. And these are the two 
let's bear in mind, these are the two companies that are building virtually all of the existing US 5G networks as well at the moment. So it's it, there's, a, there's a kind of dark side to this, I think, with this sort of politicization of Open RAN. And I mean, I wrote a blog on it called The Political Hijacking of It, which I, you know, put up the, put up the other day. Um, I just wonder whether it's going to be a positive for the technology in the long term. Uh, it's, it's sort of changing its direction in a way that, that was never really predestined when it first came along a couple of years ago. And I think there's a real negative side to that. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butt in, not because it's not an interesting topic, but because it's been quite a long tangent. We've still got a few things we want to get through. But, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting positioning. And, and your point about politicization is kind of um, supported by the fact that some of the submissions to this political fact-finding were clearly positioning um, uh, Open RAN as this sort of security panacea, which seems uh, at very best optimistic. Um, so, yeah, onto the public sector and academia section of the people who responded to this thing. The DCMS and the Ministry of Defence responded um, uh, jointly um, and they pretty much just said we stand by what we did before. So um, there's not too much need to drill down into it, although they did make a concession which which came up um, among some of the other submissions. I'm just going to read it verbatim. It says the NCSC's uh, guidance to industry sets out clearly um, what the critical safety functions are. If operators, so and, and their point being that as long as critical safety functions are not have not got Huawei involvement, then everything things cool they go if if operators were to start pushing core functionality to the edge of the network under 5g high-risk vendors will be excluded from from performing that functionality irrespective of where in the network the operator is performing that critical function this would apply for example to mobile edge computing now so they're sort of conceding the point and this is a critical thing where in in the final section which i come to in the sec which is the experts a lot of them were calling into question this distinction between the core and the edge um, there's some fundamental security concerns about making a distinction between the core and the edge, i.e., is there a hard firewall between one and the other and all that sort of thing, or is it just fluid? Can, can you have containment? But they also make the point that under 5G, and one of the experts made this point, once you start getting into um, the low latency stuff, you know, the automated vehicles, all that sort of thing, a hell of a lot of the stuff's going to be going on at the edge. Um, so making this distinction between the core and the edge at this stage does seem a little bit crude. So I bet Ericsson said that, Scott. I haven't, I haven't read the submissions, but I, I, I have spoken to Ericsson about this before, and, and I find their stance on this quite interesting because they, they obviously don't want to come along and be too critical and, and sort of take sides because they fear repercussions uh, in China, I'm guessing. But they do. One of the things they have said to me in the past is that they think this distinction between the core and the edge is blurring, um, which suits the argument that you should just get rid of Huawei completely because if it is blurring, then having them anywhere in the network is a dangerous thing to do. So it's a very sort of subtle yeah. way of them sort of undermining the case to have Huawei in the network. It is, but it's also it's all it is also quite coherent. Um, you know, I I'm I'm all in favour of the argument that that you can mitigate risk. But if experts are saying that there is no hard cutoff between one and the other, then I don't see how letting it in one and not the other mitigates the risk. You know, this is a whole this is a whole separate discussion by itself. But it, it's it's a it's a really interesting one, and it's coming back to the fore thanks to these things. The other 
the other public sector slack slash academic group was Scotland 5G Centre, which is some academics and, and a quango that are all funded by the Scottish Parliament. And they basically had a pop at it all. And I just thought, well, there's a big shock because the Scottish Parliament pretty much moans about everything that the British Parliament does. Um, then going on to the experts, I mean, I'm not going to go through them all because there are a whole lot of them. One of them was our mate John Strand. Uh, and he and um, a person called Rosalind Layton um, have founded a website called China Tech Threat. So I think you can safely assume which direction they were coming from. But they were hardly alone. You know, there were there were various people. Retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding wasn't having any of it. Um, uh, there was a, a fascinating guy called Christopher Balding who. who fled China in 2018. Um, he was an academic, but he was worried about his personal safety because he was saying some stuff. Presumably it was winding the Communist Party up the wrong way, so he legged it. Um, and uh, and then the last thing I'm going to say, and I've got to read some of it out loud because it was just such classic stuff. A retired Royal Navy Lieutenant Commander called Lester May just had by far the shortest submission. It was like half a page. And he just said, my comments about Huawei and 5G are simple. As a one-nation conservative and patriot, I want us to do as little business with wayward and criminal dictatorships as possible. And the two main nations we must avoid working with are, of course, China and Russia. The coronavirus pandemic should be a wake-up call. No 5G, even if it slows us down and costs us more. I was quite angry that the government was prepared to work with Huawei and thought, the government, and thought they'd gone mad. I don't trust China. You shouldn't trust China. This pandemic makes it clear that China is not trustworthy. Do not do business with China. Wise up. <laughs> I just thought, all right, mate, don't pull your punches. So uh, so there was plenty of that sort of thing. And my conclusion was that, you know, if these written submissions are aimed to go by um, and the government takes them at face value, then China's in, then Huawei's in a lot of trouble because about the only people that were supporting Huawei were Huawei itself. BT to some degree because they're extremely worried about the cost and the government that made the decision. So yes, I'll I'll stop ranting about that. And if either of you two got any other thoughts on all that, Peter. well, was there anything there, um, Scott, from uh, other operators at all? You mentioned BT, but I'd be surprised if Three didn't have something to say about this because they're heavily in with uh, Huawei and um, and Vodafone uses them. I mean, they're less reliant. I don't think they have a huge exposure, but if the levels, if the limits get brought down below that 35% cap that's been set, then then they would have to start looking at, at taking things out. So I'm just wondering if they had anything to say. Yeah, they're, they're among the written submissions, which is what I sifted through, and there were about 20 in total, and I, I scanned a lot of them and picked out 10 that had seemed to have more interesting stuff. You know, I didn't have time to read the pages and pages of all of them. I did a bit of sort of control F Huawei in China to get to the juicy bits. Um, but uh, no, no other operators, no three, um, uh, no uh, Vodafone, none of that. That doesn't mean they haven't submitted that there have been um, uh, oral submissions as well. Sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? Um, but uh, <laughs> I know I'm such a child. Um, and it could have been, they could have uh, just rung up and gone, yeah, yeah, this is what we think. But among the written submissions, no, uh, it was only BT among the operators. Cool. All right. I will take that little pause as a sign to move on to the final segment, as we've been banging on for quite a while, which is contact tracing apps. So the NHS 
we've got a bit of the NHS called NHS X, I think it is, which is like the, the techie bit. They have come up with this contact tracing app. And just to briefly recap what the point of contact tracing apps are, is that they use smartphones and they use specifically Bluetooth technology um, so that uh, you can basically track which other phones that phone has been near and by extension, which people you have been near, assuming that everyone's holding their own phones. And then, um, and then the way they work, certainly in the West, it would be it would be much more intrusive in places like China. The way they work in the West is that you volunteer that you know you got a bit of a cough and a bit of a temperature, you think you might have the Rona, and you put that into um, you put that into the app, and then the app um, automatically lets anyone else whose sort of Bluetooth signature um, has coincide has has been close to yours know that they've been near to someone who might have it. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, and that's how they work. Now, I don't know. It's, everyone seems to have frozen on the screen. Can everyone still hear me? Yeah. Okay. It's just Ian. You're still there, aren't you, but Jamie? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just Ian. I can hear okay. You. It's all right. I, I just mean... want to make sure I, w I was still being recorded and wasn't just banging on pointlessly, uh, any more than usual anyway. Um, so, so, so that's all fine, and that all makes sense. The 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 big uh, sort of schism in terms of how best to go about it is between decentralized and centralized. So, decentralized, um, none of the data ever leaves your phone. All that happens is the other phone knows it's been near your phone and is notified when you uh, when you say that you've got the bug. Centralized means that your notification that you got a bug goes to a central server, typically owned by the health authority which is then in charge of notifying these other people. The advantage of the centralized um, model is, of course, it gives the health authority a bunch of data so they can do things like um, sort of mapping where there might be hotspots. They can, they can be more proactive, and if someone says, um, I think I've got it, they can arrange for them to be tested and all these things, which are all positive. But the negative of it is to do with data privacy and civil liberties and the worries that people might have about being spied on by the government. Now, the crucial point about these two, it would just be a sort of uh, an ideological discussion if it wasn't for the fact that Apple and Google have been getting together to form a an API and a and a and a sort of technology platform from which to do um, contact tracing, and they favour very much the decentralised model, such that they will have very diminished cooperation with any people who go for centralised. Which brings us back to the announcement by the UK this week, um, which is that they're going for the centralized model, and it's led lots of people to go, well, is it even going to work? Because there's certain technological things that Apple and Google have to enable, such as having that Bluetooth sort of beacon technology running, even if the app isn't on in the foreground, which which may not happen with our app. So there we are. That was quite a big monologue from me. I'm going to chuck it over to you, Jamie, just because you seem to be alive while Ian's screen's gone mad. Um, what are your thoughts? You've written a fair bit like early on about the thinking about these contact tracing apps. What do you think? What are your thoughts about what the UK's done, and would you use the app yourself? Um, well, it won't work. Um, you know, I mean, the, the Apple has already turned around and said that <clears throat> they won't um, allow, they won't lift this security feature, which allows data to be taken off a phone via Bluetooth signals continuously while a um, uh, while an app is running in the background. So, and 
uh, Android has similar features in that the app can continue to broadcast data while it's running in the background for a couple of minutes, but it cuts off after a couple of minutes. So unless you have an Android device, which you are waking up and putting the app in the foreground every couple of minutes, or you have an Apple device where you are permanently opening um, your app, um, it's not going to work. You know, I mean, the UK government has turned around and said, well, actually, the way we've got around this is that although the devices can't broadcast, um, they can receive data, um, uh, which is a way to get around the security feature. But this is presuming that if, say, me and you walk past each other in the streets, this is presuming that one of us has the app open in the foreground. Now, if we both got our phone in sleep mode, neither phone will, will pick up the other one. Therefore, there's no contact which is registered through the application. So I think I, I, I understand the decentralized and the centralized um, argument. And I have got some sympathy for it because if you centralize all of this data in a single, um, you know, everything from health data to location um, to, to unique identifiers uh, on the phones, you are basically putting a massive X on a treasure map for one of the biggest and most valuable data repositories in the, uh, on the planet to all the hackers on the dark web. So I've got a, I've got a sympathy you know, for the centralized versus decentralized um, arguments, not from privacy, but from security as well, but also from functionality. You've just got to turn around and say, right, Google and Apple aren't helping us. We want this app to work as well as possible to contain the uh, further spread of this virus. So we've got to build an app with the building blocks that we have available to us to ensure that it functions in the way it's supposed to. The government hasn't done that. They built something, even though all the evidence says that it's not going to be anywhere near as effective as desired. I think it's an absolute shambles. Um, I think Matt Warman, I think Oliver Dowden, or whatever his name is, uh, the Secretary of State and the ministers, and the guys who are in charge of this um, NHS uh, sort of technology business that develops the app, it should be hung, drawn, and quartered. I think it's a shambles. I think it's a complete failure of uh, of these bureaucrats to do their job properly. And I think it's 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 a it's a promise to society that is going to fix a problem when they absolutely categorically know that it cannot be the solution. Well said, my friend. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it from that that you're that you're probably not going to be using the app. What do you think, Ian, uh, of, of our summary of it, and and whether you're going to be a fan of the uh, app? It's good, good to see Jamie sitting on the fence there, uh, as usual. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to confess, this is not something I've looked into to the extent that you guys have. I know it's being apparently trialled on the Isle of Wight, isn't it, as we speak? Um, so the whole argument about centralization and decentralization is, is interesting. It's not something I know as much about. I know there's quite a bit of resistance to it, though, anyway. It's, um, you know, you get the whole sort of civil liberties side to this people concerned about 
surveillance and oversight and whether it's something they really want to be using. It sounds like it's subject to abuse. I'm just a bit sceptical that these contact tracing apps are the best way of dealing with this anyway. I know there's a, a desire to see whether technology can play a role. And obviously, obviously if it can, then we want it to. And it's a, a good thing to try and use. But I just don't know whether it's something that can be done very effectively outside outside the kind of practices that we look at and criticise for being too sort of totalitarian and, you know... Um, we, we probably don't really want to go down that road anyway. So um, I'm just curious. With, you know, Jay's comments are really interesting in terms of the technical deficiencies of it. And it's uh, just makes you wonder whether it's really going to go anywhere. And, and pro probably it's not going to, it probably it's not going to help us to get out of this pandemic, put it like that. Not in this country. Anyway. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I mean, the government, uh, when it announced it typically fudged its position and said it's just part of a package of measures and all that sort of thing but you know that doesn't in any way undermine jamie's point which is it either works or it doesn't i don't I mean, care whether it's a package of measures or not and if it doesn't work then what's the point go on jamie well i mean the, i mean this is the one thing that really baffles me is that it's it's a complete ego trip um by politicians and these 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 bureaucrats who seem to to seem to want to validate their position um, like, what are people in the NHS good at? They're good at running a healthcare system. What are the likes of Apple, Google, all these guys in Silicon Valley, what are they good at? They're really, really good at building um, applications which collect, analyze, and action data. Right, what should we do when we're building an application to deal with one of the biggest pandemics on the, that we've seen for over Is that a great years? question, Jamie? Yeah. <laughs> Should we listen to the experts in Silicon Valley? No. Let's listen to these. Let's listen to public sector bureaucrats who, who are, have probably failed to get to the interview stages for a job at Google anyway. I mean, it it baffles me. It truly baffles me. Yeah, no, I I think we all agree. Listen, we're running out of time. There's one last thing I wanted to mention. I noticed Jamie, you were just having a a drink earlier. Um, I'm I'm having a drink. I'm having a, a Budvar. What are you drinking? Is that is alcohol-free beer for the moment? I haven't managed to get to the shops yet. I see. And um, alcohol-free beer. So you know you're looking good shape, mate. Maybe that's one of the reasons. But I'm going to put it to you, Ian. What, what are your thoughts on drinking alcohol-free beer versus just not drinking anything at all? Um, well, I. It depends what you're drinking for, I suppose, doesn't it? But when when I've when I've not drunk, I've found that alcohol-free beer doesn't sort of help my cravings, and I just worry about it being kind of loaded with sugar or other crap instead. So, but apparently, apparently Heineken Zero or whatever it is that Jamie's on is is pretty low calorie count, so hence his skilt appearance at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I think you know, <laughs> allowing for all that, I think we can safely agree that I'm drinking a proper beer. So I'm more of a man than Jamie. We can all agree on that, yeah? I, I actually haven't had a beer since Saturday now, which I think is pretty good going. Um, Damn. I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm on every day, mate. Either alcohol-free or alcohol, but I yes. plan on having it at two hours' time. So, uh, yeah, I'll yeah. make up for it, I think. No, I'm on, I'm on every day. I heard some little news bulletin today. Some woman going, don't start turning into alcoholic just because you're locked down. Maybe, maybe if you're having a Zoom meeting with friends, have a coffee instead. And I was like, yeah, right. But uh, anyway, 
Uh, oh, is, is that Pierre saying he hasn't had an alcohol-free quarantine day? Good man, Pierre. You're in my team. Except Pierre's <laughs> annoyingly skinny in spite of it. So you don't count. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought he'd be uh, sort of a couple of days a week, man. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been going crazy in my defence. Just, uh, you know, one or two in the evening. But um, I've got to admit, I get to about six o'clock. And it's definitely that, that alarm clock's going on in my head, which is probably quite worrying. But there you go. What can you do? We've got a pub quiz tonight with uh, a couple with the guys that I grew up with. Uh, so, so we're gonna. So I'm gonna go to the shop, get a couple of beers. I try not to drink throughout the week. Uh, anyway, I'm trying not to keep alcohol in the house. Um, obviously, it, uh, circ circumstances has has largely. Uh, well, it's not largely dictated that, but it has it has dictated it to a degree. Um, but well, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm I enjoy I enjoy waking up, feeling clear headed, and sort of doing a bit of exercise. So I'm quite happy. Clear-headed, exercise, what on earth are you talking about? No, yeah, that's obviously very sensible, and I should be more so. Let's see. Maybe maybe after it's over, I'll, I'll diet starts then. <laughs> yeah. I feel, I feel healthier now than I have than I have for years. Even when, I mean, the only thing is, I, I, I dropped a load of weight, but part of it, I think, is uh, muscle is muscle loss, but also, I think, yeah, a lot of it's attributed to, 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 to exercise and diet. Um, I mean, I've dropped well, five and a half kilograms since uh, during the lockdown period. So uh, the, the lightest I've been for about 10 years. That's almost a stone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm down to, I'm down to just over 93 kilograms now. So, yeah, pretty much the lightest I've, I've been since pre-uni, I'd say. Wow. We're, 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 uh, we're, we're sort of closing on a meeting point, Jamie, because I've gone in the other direction. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm now about 89, 88, 89. So I, I don't, I, I actually don't know my number, but I don't think I'd share it if I did. But we, we can, we can assume that hundreds in the distant rearview mirror. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, okay. Well, well, good for you guys. I'm delighted to hear you're you're so healthy. You, you inspire me. Not enough for yeah, me I to do anything. I went for a run around um, around the common yesterday and. Probably, probably came very close to your house. The nice, the, the, there's plenty of ducks on Wandsworth Common yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I went around. Uh, I usually go around Wandsworth and Clapham, so I did it last night. Uh, but I've not done as much recently as I as I was Actually, doing. I've got and, one and, other theory, Jamie, about why you're feeling so healthy because you're not getting the shit kicked out of you every Saturday on the rugby field. <laughs> those, those crutches are a distant memory, eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, guys, I think we, we, we've certainly done at least an hour there. So I'll call it a day. Thanks a lot, guys, and thank you for listening. Make sure you join us for the next one. Bye.